I'm George Kittle, and you're listening to The Niner Guys. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Niner Guys. Todd Kleinheinz and Jerry Sue with you after another Niner victory. Um, We're going to get into it because apparently winning isn't just the most important thing for most 49er fans. It's how you win and what goes into the win. Uh, for me, I was very happy with the win. I would have liked to have seen, uh, you know, a few tweaks here and there. There are definitely some issues to uh, talk about. But, Jerry, we saw the Niners in prime time against the Chargers. Uh, your thoughts coming out of the game, which we, we talked about going in, was probably the healthiest game they've had all year long. So what are, what were your thoughts after the Sunday night prime, prime, prime time extravaganza? Well, you know what the game was like, Todd? It's like when there's a new movie you're eagerly waiting to see. But after seeing it, you feel let down because the movie wasn't as good as you thought it'd be. And even if the movie was actually decent, you're still unsatisfied because you had higher expectations. So that's what the Niners were like on Sunday. Because at the end of the day, yes, they won. And a win is a win but the offense left a lot to be desired because all week long we kept hearing that it was going to be a quote-unquote pick your poison type of situation given all of their firepower even christian mccaffrey said it was like playing on a pro bowl team which isn't far off considering the resumes of a lot of those guys plus they were coming off their bye week so everyone as you mentioned was getting healthy And Kyle Shanahan had two weeks to draw up a game plan that should have been a lot more dynamic than what we'd seen the first half of the season. And they were playing at home on national television against a wounded Chargers team that had given up the third most points in the NFL. So it was all set up for the Niners offense to have a great showing. Now, don't get me wrong. I wasn't expecting them to duplicate Super Bowl 29 or anything, but to only score 22 points, 22 points, which is what they averaged the first half of the season. That's, that's just disappointing because that ranks 18th in the league. And given the skill position players they have, I think that's unacceptable. And I know this 1980 style of ground and pound offense is what Kyle loves and, It's what's helped the Niners win ugly whenever necessary, but it doesn't really do them any favors when they're in the playoffs. And I think that's what a lot of people sort of worry about, more of the long-term view of this team. Because, you know, we've seen it. If they're down and then suddenly Kyle needs Jimmy to sling the rock around to win the game, it doesn't really work that way. So I, I think the offense needs to just start becoming more dynamic on all fronts especially in the passing game, but even in the run game. Because Kyle's fascination with the inside handoff up the gut for no gain is really getting old and predictable. But thankfully, we had Nick Bosa on defense, and I know a lot of the other guys contributed as well, like Charles Amenahu, Jordan Willis, Fred Warner, Jimmy Ward, and others. But Bosa is the difference maker. Because this game started feeling a little like the Falcons game, and it could have easily gone down Ugly Street like it did in Atlanta. But Bosa didn't let it happen. 
sacking Justin Herbert at critical junctures and helping the defense pitch another second half shutout, which is why whenever I hear the media praise Jimmy Garoppolo for having this astounding record, I'd actually like to know how many of those wins came when Bosa was on the field as well, because I would bet he was there for most, if not all those wins. In fact, the crazy stat that was being shared, which seemed to characterize how the defense has been bailing out, not just Jimmy, but Kyle as well, is that the Niners are 10-2 and when Jimmy Garoppolo doesn't throw a single touchdown. I mean, that is an astounding stat in this day and age of pro football. But that's just going to catch up to you against the better teams, especially in the postseason. I mean, you can't just live off of kicking field goals. You've got to score touchdowns. So hopefully Kyle can figure it out. He has the weapons, like Brandon Ayuk, who continues having a breakout year. Jawan Jennings, who's Mr. Reliable on third down conversions. George Kittle being a monster whenever he gets the ball. Same with Debo. And the lightning and thunder combo of Elijah Mitchell and Christian McCaffrey should be lethal. So every ingredient is there for them to become a juggernaut offense. So it's time for Kyle to let him loose and light up that scoreboard. Lot to unpack there. Um, so, well, let, before I get to some other things, it, well, no, let me get to some the beginning stuff uh, before we get into the game. Uh, that being, you saw all the players, most of the players, at least the ones they showed in pregame, wearing Jason Verrett t-shirts, which is, I guess, a little surprising, only because the guy really, he hasn't been here that long. He hasn't played that many games it's not like he's been an instrumental part of some kind of championship team, but the fact that all these players were wearing a Jason Verrett t-shirt just, I think speaks to the locker room. I think speaks to Jason himself as to how respected he is and what a hard worker he must be. I mean, to go through the injuries he's gone through is, and and to keep coming back is, is astounding. Um, but I just thought, Boy, that that really speaks to who this team is because they see one of these guys go down with another injury, uh, you know, just possibly career ending. I mean, it's it's his third, it's his third injury that had he had it in the eighties would have ended his career. He, ACLs and Achilles. So I thought that was that was interesting. And to start off the game, I thought, oh, finally they've told Robbie Gold kick the ball into the end zone. We're not trying to drop it on the goal line and pin them back it, But that went out the window later in the game when they went back to, we're going to try and kick it between the goal line and the five and have our special teams, you know, pin them inside the 25. I don't know what's wrong with just kick it out of the end zone. Like, like I know, you know, every once in a while they, they did get a stop like at what the 17 or something. Great. You're picking up a few yards of field position, but eliminate any injuries, eliminate any, strange, weird plays that might come up with someone falling and running back and kickoff, kick it out of the end zone, start at the 25, let's go. So those were just two, two things that I noticed before and at the opening kickoff. Now, regarding your points per game and touchdowns, I agree they were inside the red zone five times, got points, but limited amount of touchdowns. But what what is an appropriate points per game for this team. At least 30. At, and not so, just at least 30. And not, not just at least 30. 
But against a team like the Chargers, oh, who are playing goodness. all these backups, right? I mean, that's that. I feel like they could have really taken advantage of that secondary so more you, so than they did. So you think this is not only the number one offense in the league, but the number one scoring offense in 49er history? Again, they have the talent. I don't know. what What is – let me ask you this. In the last – I don't know, however many, in the weeks that Tua Tagovailoa has been healthy, what have the Dolphins been averaging? Um, well, I don't know. I'd have to break down what they are. but Because that's team, the way I look at the Niners. I the, see the Niners have having equal talent to what the Dolphins have on the offensive side. So they should be running up the score just like the Dolphins have. Well, the, and the Dolphins are averaging 25 points a game. I mean... It, now, when you say 25, was that 25 with Tua or 25? No, that's, that's, that's 25 overall, oh, 25 overall okay. you know, and Tua missed two games. So they would have to average, they would have to be around 40 for both of those games to get up, in, you know, into the third. The Kansas City Chiefs, who we saw lead the NFL at 30 points a game. I mean, and they lead it by three points. Buffalo is second at 27. And I only bring this up because. It just seems so many people expect this to be not only the greatest show on turf, because the greatest show on turf scored 33 points a game. They expect historic offense. And while the stars and the pro bowlers are there, we we would be foolish to assume Kyle is going to suddenly change his ways. He is still going to be a ground first game. Again, I agree with you. I would have liked to, they got into the red zone. Had they punched one or two of those in there, it would have been a much more comfortable win. You would have been up, you would have been up in the thirties type of thing. So that, I don't think that's out of line to expect. Now I will say, I thought the chargers played, played a better run game than I expected, especially considering they're giving up, six, seven yards at carry coming into this game. Now, finally, I guess Brandon Staley put together a defense to say, fine, we're going to do everything we can to stop them. Um, And I'll let you get back to the points per game. But when I watched, one thing I noticed, do you think Christian McCaffrey is a great running back fit for this zone scheme? I would say yes, mainly because his skill set is similar to that of your Jarek McKinnon. He's a better version of Jarek McKinnon. And Jarek McKinnon was a guy that Kyle, you know, pounded the table for. That was the guy that he supposedly had all these plays drawn up for. So, um, yeah, no, I would think that whatever Kyle had, as I mentioned previously, in mind for your Jarek McKinnon he should have that and then some for a uh, Christian McCaffrey. But that's why, I mean, so in terms of like the score and the scoreboard, that's why it's it's beyond just the numbers, right? Like, I'm look, it would have looked great. Like, I don't even know if people would be complaining if, let's say, Brandon IU caught that one ball for a touchdown, which was kind of weird. It's like he sort of looked like his the momentum of his body was going one way and the ball ended up going the other way, right? So obviously, if he caught that, it would have looked a lot better on the scoreboard. Sure. But still, I just, that's what I'm saying. It's just, it's beyond the numbers, right? It doesn't change the fact that on third and goal in the first quarter, 
Kyle dialed up an inside handoff right into the teeth of the defense for no gain. Mm-hmm. Right. And then of course they had to settle for a field goal. And it doesn't change the fact that McCaffrey averaged a measly 2.7 yards per carry because his number was often called to, you guessed it, run it up the middle and get stuffed. So if you're saying, does he fit this offense? Not if that's all he's going to, the Kyle's going to dial up for him, which I sincerely doubt that was the plan for Jarek McKinnon. Um, you know, you don't acquire a dynamic player like Christian McCaffrey and all you do is run him up the middle. So, I mean, I, and for me, I think one of my favorite plays, I don't know if it's the season, but definitely for the game was when Jimmy G hit Ray Ray McLeod on that second reaction play where Jimmy had to buy time and throw a platform, as they say, you know, because I think Jimmy needs to have that ability. I know you always say, well, he is what he is. He can't be more. I think there's a little bit more there. Obviously, he can do it. Maybe not as consistently or as often as your Patrick Mahomes, as your um, Josh Allens, right? But, you know, clearly the receivers are not being schemed to be wide open as they were before. I feel like, I don't know, because I feel like Jimmy is often still looking at, I don't know if it's his first or second read and it, and, and it's just, he doesn't have enough time, you know? And sometimes when they are there, I don't know if Jimmy doesn't see them. Cause I know that sometimes it looked like Ayuk or some others were open and he stuck with his first read still. But I just think that he's got to be able to make some of those plays like the ones that he made to McLeod. And I love seeing that, but I'm sure Kyle probably didn't. <laughs> uh no Kyle Kyle absolutely did not um quick quick math is telling me Tua and the Dolphins are averaging 27 points a, a contest um no. so I, I mean but because here's the thing as you know as highlighty as the Dolphins are they they've only broken 20 points They've only scored over 20 points twice in their last eight games. You know, 20 to 7, 21 19. Lost, they lost 27 15, 40 to 17. Then that's when Tua was out. And then they won 31 27, 39 17 to open the season. So again, it's it's the Chris Berman's fastest three minutes kind of issue is. We see tight. I mean, you would think, you know, they were putting up 40, 50 points a game the way they show it because it's Waddle, Tyreek. I mean, Jeff Wilson went off for 100 yards today. So I agree that the Niners and the Dolphins, I mean, they equate in terms of star power, offensive star power. Their coaching staffs are obviously very similar. Um, but I think, I think you're seeing a more open-minded Mike McDaniel when it comes to willing to let Tua just throw deep to Tyreek and not so much letting Kyle, letting Jimmy do it. So I ask you, how much of this, if any, has to do with Kyle not trusting Jimmy to throw the ball? For example, inside the five, I would love to see play action to the tight end. I would love to see just the running back catch a little pass out in the flat and, you know, race to the race to the pylon type of thing. Um, But how much of it is Kyle doesn't trust Jimmy 
to make that pass or complete that pass or or whatnot and isn't willing to sacrifice a possible interception for three points. I think Kyle has just such a conservative mindset. I honestly don't even know if it's a Jimmy thing. could be a Jimmy thing. And I often wonder if that was the crux of the uh, the turmoil between him and Matt Ryan during their early days in Atlanta, where maybe he wanted to run it more and Matt Ryan wanted to throw it more. And maybe the, 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 uh, you know, the compromise was, okay, I'll let you throw it, but you got to complete every pass I dial up or we're not throwing as much. And it just so happens that Matt Ryan did complete every, you know, almost all his passes because he was MVP the year that Kyle let him cook as they say these days. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so we all thought, Hey, Kyle's willing to let it fly, but maybe it's not so much that Kyle was willing or that that's what he wanted, but that was the compromise that he ended up coming to with Matt Ryan. Who knows? I don't know. Nobody's ever really specifically stated what their qualms were with each other. Um, But the other thing too is who did he have with him in Atlanta? Mike McDaniel. And I don't know. I'm almost wondering if Mike McDaniel was the secret sauce behind Shanahan's success. Because as much as you might say, well, look, maybe McDaniel's just more open to this and, you know, and he's whatever. But what does everybody say about the Shanahan offense? Oh, it's so difficult. It's so complex. Dude, McDaniel installed it first year, rookie year quarterback, and that offense is off to the races. So I almost feel like McDaniel's just a better offensive coach. Uh, maybe yeah um i would be interested to know where the where the dolphins rank in the running game any idea uh no but real quick but Tua, remember he was left for dead before mcdaniel got there yeah for sure and now i mean i don't think i really don't even think miami dolphin fans would be clamoring for tom brady at this point i think they are very happy with the situation that they have at quarterback as far as the running, it's actually funny you mentioned the running backs because every time I see the Dolphins, I think, wow, this is the Niners Southeast because you got Raheem Mostert running it and then you got Jeff Wilson running it. And Dolphins. I don't know if they still have that one guy who had a cup of coffee here. Um, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but then there's another guy I think he used to be a Niner who's also still on the Dolphins. The Dolphins. I'm surprised Matt Breida isn't there. The Dolphins are 23rd in rushing. At They've got 977 yards this year. 4.2 yards a carry. And yeah. So, I mean, yeah, take it for what it's worth. You, clearly, you know, clearly Kyle seems to lean run. Mike McDaniel, he was the passing game coordinator. So, you know, um, you know, obviously that was his forte. So he feel, you know, he's got to feel that he's learned a lot and is implement putting his own stamp on things. So um, that's nice and interesting. Uh, last thing on Jimmy. Remember, we always talk about it's not it's I think we talked about it maybe shortly after he took got, the, you know, took over as the starting job. If I if you could only know his final touchdowns for the season or his final interceptions, which would you rather know? Because which is gonna would give you the better idea of how the season turned out. And I had said that I'd rather know his interceptions because his 
the lower his interceptions, probably the better the team was going to do because his passing wasn't was it was we weren't expecting or I wasn't expecting 35, you know, 30, 35 touchdowns, right? But if you told me up, oh, he's going to end with 18 picks, I'd be really concerned that up oh, we, we blew some games we shouldn't have. He's got four picks, you know, on, on the season through through eight games. So if you're telling me he's only throwing one pick every two games, that's probably a better recipe, which, again, just might, I have no idea, might lead Kyle to go, I'd rather have the three points than a possible interception. Again, leaning towards his conservative nature. Um but which which lends to that 10 and 2 record when Jimmy doesn't throw a single touchdown cuz it clearly it doesn't matter. It doesn't what matter. What matters is the interceptions like you said whereas Absolutely. the average fan and then you know would be like no, give me his touchdown total yes, because that him. should be a more indicator right. of how well the team how 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 well his season's going, how well the team's right. doing. But again, in Kyle's world and that's the frustrating part. That's why when you're like, well, let's talk about the numbers. And to me, and I think a lot of fans, when you're watching it, that's not what you're thinking. When you're watching it, you want, and again, yes, of course you want the excitement, but you also want them to see him put in the end zone. Sure. Right? Like, like I was like the Washington game, you know, against Philly. We just saw, sure. you know, the Taylor Heineke's commanders take down the previously undefeated Eagles on Monday yep. Night Football. Mm-hmm. That game was Kyle Shanahan's ultimate wet dream because Washington ran the ball. Do you know how many times? No. 40. 49 times. There you go. 49 times. And they yeah. won. That is Kyle Shanahan's ultimate wet dream. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I and I, I totally get in. I agree. And I'm not opposed. Again, I'm not, it makes it sound like I'm opposed to, you know, putting the ball in. I'd love to put the ball in. I mean, probably one of my favorite games over the past few years was the, it was either a Sunday night or Monday night game uh, when the Niners played Cleveland. And it was like, Brita, touchdown on the first play of the game. First defensive play. Sack uh, Mayfield. He fumbles, picks up, running it. He was like, those are a lot. You know, those are exciting. I love that. That's, you know. But, again, it's like, if they put if they put 12 more points up on the board, put two touchdowns instead of two field goals, you know, you're talking – Okay, cool. We're in the mid to high 30s, which I know this is just a passing offensive league, but if you just look at around the NFL, I I think no, did anyone hit 40 this week? You know, I know that Buffalo Bills game was back and forth, but getting into the high 30s right now, that is a lot of points for the NFL. And and the Niners could do it. I hope they do it. I would love for them to you know, if they can just if they can get up to if they could get up to the Dolphins twenty seven, that's going to put them in like the top eight in points. And with this defense, that's got to be enough to you know get in and be productive and make noise uh, in the playoffs. So, well, what's mind boggling too is that whenever the Niners play the Rams, they seem to open it up. They seem to score a lot of points. The the, the teacher. I would love to play the Rams every game because Kyle seems to have. Either a, I'm going to stick it to you, Sean McVay, kind of an attitude, yeah, or sure. I don't know what it is. So that's why I think as Niner fans, we're frustrated because, like, clearly it's there. Yeah. He's got it in him to call these plays. But against any other team, nope, nope. Everything's close to the vest. Everything shuts down. Everything turns conservative. But 
We play the Rams. It's Rams week. We stick it to them. So I, I, think I think that's I think, partially the uh, the conundrum or the frustration because you know much, it's there. Much like how Bill Belichick just has no love whatsoever for the Jets because of everything that went on with his whole he's going to coach the Jets and all you know, everything to do, everything to do with that. Uh, I think that's how Kyle feels about the Rams. You wouldn't give me one night of vacation before I decided if I wanted to pull the trigger on Matt Stafford. You would not give me, you could not even let me finish my dinner before you push. Well, screw you. And Sean, I am, I am going to remain the Yoda to your Luke Skywalker as I will be the master. And that's why he does it. It's like, he feels some personal angst and like, I no, like I'm not just well, going to win. I need to, I need to, in his, in his world, push the envelope and well, it's and too bad. He doesn't have a personal vendetta against every team in the NFL. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, let's get into some other things in the game. You mentioned McCaffrey. Um, I don't know. Were you disappointed with the number of snaps or touches? Uh, Eli Mitchell came back and looked good, put up what 85, 87 yards rushing. Um, I would have loved to have seen McCaffrey because again, I think he's the new gadget toy that you would love to see get involved but if you're going to be able to get both of them 18 touches, you're, you're just going to be more productive with half as much wear, you know, and I know you mentioned, Hey, we can't, you can't have Eli Mitchell just run consecutive plays. You, know, you got to get him out. This might be what is called for is like, all right, Eli, you get in there. Okay. Christian, you get in there and you're not, you're not losing anything at either point when, when either of them come in. So I thought, I thought that was good. And let's go back to the very beginning. The reason I brought up does Christian fit this zone running scheme? It seemed that he kept taking those outside handoffs and looking for more of a power sweep. He kept trying to get to the edge opposed to go down, find your crease and cut it back, you know, go down, find the hole and break it. And, and I'm sure he, he hasn't been in this system. He was always in the, you know, hit the gap that you're told to go to. Whereas that zone running scheme is you stretch it out. And as soon as you see a crack in the, you know, defense, that's where you hit it. Could be here, could be here, could be here. Um, and I just saw him get strung out a few too many times. And I'm wondering, is he just not used to that? Is he just not used to finding that and going? He's used to running the exact play to a science. So um, I thought those things were interesting. I'll be the first one to go negative. Um, I, I I think Mike McGlinchey is just really, really hurting um, Jimmy and the pass game, especially when he's going up against a Khalil Mack, you know, when he's going up against an above average to an elite pass rusher. Now everyone's going to probably have trouble with Khalil Mack, but the fact that he gets pushed back so easily in pass protection we know Jimmy doesn't perform well in a muddy pocket. We know when people are falling around his legs, he is not, he's not the most accurate. And not to mention as a fan, scary as hell when you start seeing people fall around his ankles and knees, knowing Brock Purdy is, you know, on the sideline. So um, <laughs> I don't know what it's going to take. I hope it's not have Christian McCaffrey be a lead blocker more often. Like we saw this past game, but I don't Dwelly's got to get in there. Tyler Croft's got someone's got to get in there and help McGlinchey at least a little bit to slow down. Now, Jimmy's biggest 
one of his most positive traits is he gets the ball out quickly. He can't get it out so quickly before he even gets back. So the Niners have to do something about McGlinchey's, you know, inability to straight pass block one-on-one. And that could be one of the reasons why an offense is not as dynamic as we all want it to be. And I have to rewatch the game because I do know Tyler Croft was in there quite a bit. And so maybe Croft had to be in there to help McGlinchey. And yeah, man, McGlinchey just, I I don't think it's being negative. It's just being real. It's being, it's, you're calling it like what it is. I mean, McGlinchey is just has his issues. It's not, he's not the worst right tackle, but he's certainly not a good right tackle. He's like a barely serviceable right tackle because you know, he's gonna, he has his, he has his faults. And I think it makes it even worse because, and I feel bad because I think he, I mean, he's not like he doesn't care, right? I think he cares so much that it gets into his head and actually makes it worse because he probably thinks a lot about it when you're in the game and you, you know, we all know none of us have played in the professional ranks, but even, you know, in the amateur ranks, you can't think when you're playing or, you know, you're screwed. Um, So yeah, so that could be part of the reason why the offense can't be as dynamic when you have to have that extra tight end to help block. Um, But going back to the McCaffrey thing, I don't know. Again, I don't really know the ins and outs of the run dynamic of the run scheme. If I were running back in this offense, I just follow Trent Williams. In fact, (laughs) I don't know. Sometimes like I'm watching him like, why don't you just follow him? Like once Debo took the ball, I can't remember if it's the one where Jimmy Garoppolo ultimately snuck it into the end zone or if it's the one that they didn't score a touchdown, but they handed it off to Debo. He was following Trent and then he cut inside and Trent went outside Dude, if he just followed Trent, he could have just followed him. Trent would have taken care of his guy, and he could have ran to the cone. Like, I don't know why you would ever deviate from Trent Williams. So, as far as, like, the scheme, I'm like, I just I just run behind Trent Williams. That's my scheme. That's what I would do. Um, but, again, as far as, like, McCaffrey, dude, I mean, I'm thinking, dude, he should be playing running back. He should be playing your Julian Edelman, kind of, you know, your slot guy. I mean, he, he could be your everything, right? But it just seemed like they were using him as the screen guy. Like either he was throwing, they were throwing a screen to him, or he was just running it up the middle, or he was blocking. He was being Frank Gore. So I, I mean, it was yeah. kind of a weird role for him, um, in my opinion. Like I feel like they weren't, or that Kyle didn't use him to the ultimate capacity, or the way I would have personally used them. But you know, again, I yeah, <laughs> I think I have a different vision of what Christian McCaffrey should be in this offense to what Kyle has implemented thus far. Or again, who knows? I could see Kyle also having plays reserved for the playoffs, right? Like I'm not going to show everything, Mm -hmm. right? The regular season is still almost, I don't want to say semi preseason in that sense where he's not going to show you everything because he's got to keep something, you know, in his pocket for when he really needs that extra boost. Yeah, I'd like to I, – I don't have the breakdowns for position, but McCaffrey took 65% of the snaps. Eli Mitchell took 35% of the snaps um, at the halfback position. So, you know, you're seeing McCaffrey get about two-thirds of those of those things. Um, speaking of red zone offense, can I ask, why does nobody go over the top anymore, a la Marcus yeah. Allen? I mean, that, that used to be such a staple in – you're at the one yard. I mean, that would that would seem like an automatic. You're going to give it to your halfback who's going to just launch himself. Wendell Tyler, Eric Dickerson, you know, Marcus. They would just 
And it's like, it was such an automatic and nobody goes over the top anymore. They try and, you know, cut through the crack or, or, or get lower or try and burrow their way. And I'm just wondering, boy, if you're, if you're handing off to McCaffrey, because we saw on the touchdown play that the Jimmy sneak, you, the, the offensive line gets a yard of push. So if you're getting a yard of push and your running backs getting a five yard running start, you're telling me he can't vault himself to put the ball over. I mean, I don't know. Well, not just that, but I want to bring you know back when it comes the Marcus the, Allen over the top. Not just that, but you know, when it comes to the end zone, all you have to do is for have the um, the nose of the ball yep. across the plane. So I don't know why you don't have quarterbacks just sort of jump, reach out, and then quickly pull it back. Yeah, you know, unless unless the 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 data shows that I guess there were too many fumbles or it's too risky mm-hmm. from a fumbling standpoint. I mean, that, yeah. that might be, in my opinion, the only thing that has curtailed the over-the-top um, strategy. But it's funny, you know, we always see how Jimmy's really good at sneaking for the yard or whatnot. That's why I always feel like, dude, fourth and inches, fourth and one, there's no excuse. You should always go for it. Yeah. If you can if you can make that push on the goal line, why? When everybody knows, okay, look, they've got literally one yard to go. so you know it's like you can make it there you should be able to make it anywhere on the field um let's get into let's get into some controversy that being dre greenlaw's hit on uh justin herbert uh which not only was a penalty but saw him become the fifth player in the nfl this year to be ejected um Certainly, in my opinion, an overreaction uh, into if you wanted to call uh, if you wanted to call it a penalty because it went helmet to helmet. I would I guess I would buy that, although to watch it and you see Herbert going down and getting hit from one side by Jimmy Ward being pushed into Greenlaw, who's already basically going into a tackling motion um, and at, you know, 100 miles an hour, unlike super slow mo that we get to see it at. Um, just didn't certainly, I don't even think it warranted, um, a flag. I certainly don't think it warranted an ejection. However, it was Justin Herbert. It's Justin Herbert is playing a marquee game against a Patrick Mahomes in a flexed primetime game next week. Um, does that have anything to do with it? I don't know, but we saw, we saw Juju Smith Schuster get knocked out, um, and nothing happened. But Greenlaw gets the hit, gets gets flagged, um, and ejected. So, um, your your thoughts on on just the whole situation? Yeah, I know I know you don't like criticizing the officials, but I, I don't know how it's avoidable when week after week they just keep making inexcusable mistakes that affect games, and not just mistakes, but they're just so inconsistent that you're just praying that they don't make a call to screw you over. Because ejecting Dre Greenlaw was ludicrous. And thankfully, it didn't screw the Niners. But it was even more galling when they tried justifying it with some bullcrap reason. Because none of it was true. And, and I'll tell you why. Because So Herbert scrambled for a number of yards on the play right before the play that got Greenlaw tossed. But you know who was right there and didn't even attempt to hit Herbert on that previous scramble? Nope. Dre Greenlaw. Because Herbert gave himself up and slid. 
So he knows what he's supposed to do. But in this case, Herbert wasn't sliding. In fact, as you mentioned, it was Jimmy Ward's hit on Herbert, which sort of propelled Herbert towards Greenlaw. And Herbert's knee was most definitely not down before Greenlaw got into that position where he was going to hit him. So there was no way Greenlaw could have held up or avoided you know, the, the collision and any, you know, and another reason I'm so upset about the ejection is because Derwin James made to me a much more kind of a spearing helmet to helmet collision on the play where Brandon Ayuk fumbled, right? If anybody was in a defenseless, defenseless position, it was Ayuk who was being spun around by Asante Samuel. And then Derwin James came right in with the crown of his helmet, no less. Mm-hmm right down on IU, blasts him, and then goes right down towards the ball. And that's what caused the fumble. But there was no flag. There was nothing. So for the league to say that Greenlaw's ejection had nothing to do with Herbert being a quarterback is utterly bullcrap. You mentioned Juju Smith-Schuster, who got absolutely blasted on a helmet-to-helmet collision in his game against the Jags. And there was no flag or ejection on that hit either. So nothing happened when Smith-Schuster with concussion, which is crazy. And nothing happened when Ayuk was blasted on a helmet to helmet. And the refs and the NFL officials, in my opinion, just need to be called out for these bullcrap rules and bullcrap antics. Well, let me ask you, because it was, it was brought up a number of times by Mike Tirico and Chris Collinsworth that Troy Vincent made the call on the ejection back in New York. Now, Troy Vincent... He's a former player. He's a former defensive player. That, but he's not anymore. No, no, I agree. But it, but that that's even more so that he played in an era that allowed even more violent hits. That played in a tougher, in a rougher, tougher type type of NFL. So, what? Why? In I, I mean, I guess there's really no there's nothing except to hear their explanation but you would think that ex-players former players would understand a little bit more like the speed of the game or this is what's going on in the, in the moment when you're trying to tackle opposed to well yeah you know a dean blandino you know who he's never played he's just been an official and i'm gonna watch it in super slow-mo and i'm gonna direct that it would just seem to me that those ex-players would have a better understanding and judgment, but clearly they don't because he was the one who, you know, called for the ejection. Well, obviously he's far removed from the game. He's He does wear a suit now. He does work for the league office. So I think that changes you. And let's be honest. I mean, why was that call made? Because Herbert is a quarterback and because of the lawsuits, right? This is all CYA. This is all... We are on national television, and this is a quarterback. Yep. We need to protect him, and that's it. But you can pr- – again, that's why when you said, oh, I don't even think they deserved a flag, I could see a flag. A flag, Oh, I can see fine. a flag. I can see you a know? flag, but like – But if- the ejection is, is what I take umbrage with. I don't think – I guess my point was if a flag wasn't thrown – I don't think it was so egregious that you're like, whoa, totally got away with one. Because I think that in the in the moment of the game, they those things had like he wasn't sliding. He hadn't give he had, was going head for like forward. That right. 
You're a football player at that point. You just but his helmet got turned yeah. on yeah. the hit. You know, and I mean, that, again, the that's why a flag right. had yeah. to. Yeah, for sure. Uh, on the on the topic of head injuries, but not not that specific play when the uh, Murray, the the Chargers linebacker, kind of got shaken up and got sent off the you know like stumbled. The referee basically <laughs> held him up for a second. And said, "Hey, you got to go to the sidelines." Can we get all the coaches and players to stop hitting him on the head as he's coming on? <laughs> to tell him, hey, great job as we're slapping him on the head because he's coming out. I mean, again, I, outside of Myron Roll, no neuroscientists or rocket scientists coming out of the NFL, but pat on the back, slap on the butt, you know. Do, do we have to slap him on the head? Yeah, Slap the guy? You know, it's one the, of these things where I just, I just think like, when you're a football player, you're just wired differently. I don't, and and when I say wired differently, I don't think that they want to change. I think they like it. I think that contact fuels them as much as people are like, oh, we don't, you know, we don't want to, <laughs> we we don't want to do anything that might uh, make your concussion worse or might even cause one or whatnot. Who is it? Was it Baker Mayfield? Somebody last week I thought head butted somebody with the on the face without even a helmet. Or was that in college? I don't know. I just remember seeing a football player do one of these headbutts while they weren't even wearing a helmet, but the other dude was. So that's what I mean by these guys are wired differently that you can't even reason. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I Rationalize. Um, as for the rest of the game, the defense for the second week in a row basically not only pitches a shutout, just I think I think it gave up, what, 40-some-odd yards in the second half? Um completely harassed Herbert on those last few drives, especially when he was in the end zone, forcing the, the pressure that forced the game-ending interception by Hufunga. Um, the the commentators pointed out Fred Warner a number of times, and we talked about Fred, you know, kind of at the beginning of the season, seemingly not having a Pro Bowl, All-Pro Fred type of year, but in the past couple of weeks, whether it's because he's gotten healthy or something's just changed or he's or he's got a, his, you know, Shair and Greenlight's got his running mates back, whatever it is. Warner's playing fantastic. Bosa is definitely the the uh, engine that keeps the, the car going. But I'll tell you the two guys. Jordan Willis, I thought, played mm-hmm. really well on the inside. And Charles Amenahu, for the past two years, has been incredible. And, again, only the diehards are going to remember and know this. But remember, we what, we trade a seventh rounder? For for Jordan Willis and a yes. sixth or a sixth. seventh rounder for Charles Amenhu at the trade deadline, you know, the past two years, which I don't even know if they made the ticker on, you know, ESPN or NFL Network. That's how low level they were. Like, oh, you're sending a conditional seventh rounder for some backup defensive lineman. But whether it's because they were underutilized or Chris Kassarek just knows how to get the most out of individuals or whatever it is. These guys are, are I don't want to say they're difference makers in the Nick Bosa difference makers, but on this defensive line, they are extremely valuable, extremely valuable. Absolutely. I mean, I don't remember Charles Amenhu in college, but I do remember Jordan Willis coming out of Kansas State, and I liked him a lot. And I was like, kind of surprised that he didn't have more success in Cincinnati. And then I think he ultimately went to, was it yeah. the Jets that we traded Yep. For when when we got him, yeah. 
So, um, so no, it's great. I think, I think, like you said, Chris Kasura just knows how to, what buttons to press to get these guys to kind of max out on their potential. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, yeah, getting them for those late round picks, total genius move by John Lynch and his front office. It's awesome. I mean, cause like you said, those guys have been making key plays for the defense. Um, not just this year, but even like in last year when, uh, Jordan Willis blocked that, uh, that kick yep. in the playoffs. So, yep. You know, making contributions left and right. Although I'm not sure why it seems like D'Amico Ryan's always requires kind of that feeling out process in the beginning of games where his defense allows the opponent to draw first blood. But whatever adjustments he makes as the game goes along this season, as opposed to maybe last season, at least in the beginning of last season, this season he's done a really good job. Um, Because, you know, we've seen it. Like, that. you know, in the beginning you're just like, what? What's going on? This is a big Super Bowl defense, and all of a sudden, boom, things get tight. Um, I think mean, last week you'd asked, Do you think they blitz too much? And I don't think they blitz too much. I think they just have to know the right times to do it. I think early on they had Fred Warner go for a blitz, and then that allowed Austin Eckler to leak out for a big game because yep. he basically filled the slot that Fred Warner wasn't at. But then the next time Warner, I think they they dialed it up for Warner. It was like the perfect timing because Warner just got went right in and and got Herbert. So, um, and all these, a lot of these blitzes, I think is what caused Herbert to be somewhat inaccurate later on. Got, got made him feel uncomfortable, yep. but I will say speaking of uncomfortable, uncomfortable because he was on the sideline after the hit to the head. As much as we hated that green lock call of being ejected and everything. I think it kind of helped, helped the Niners that, that somehow Herbert was, was, was forced to go to the sideline and do the whole concussion protocol thing. And of course, chase Daniels to go in because they were sort of, they had momentum on their side and had Herbert been in the game, who knows, they might've scored another touchdown, but with Daniels in there, they were relegated to kick another field goal. So I I think that was, that was kind of key as well, which I don't think anybody talks about, but as as bad as it was for the Niners and Greenlaw, it might've worked out for the best in the big picture. Yep. I totally agree. Cause I I did think about that because I thought, Oh, okay. Well, McDaniel or not McDaniel, but Chase Daniels is coming in. Okay, well, let's you know. And I thought, oh well, he's coming in for one play. He's going to hand it off and just yeah, yeah. He did it. He tried to pass and like sailed it over someone's head. I'm like, oh, okay, well, well, he finished the half, which was crazy. Yeah, no, I'm like, oh, that's a great that free. That's a free down for us. Oh wait, Herbert's not coming back. Oh, maybe is he done for the game? Oh my (laughs) goodness! Like now we're really going to run. But you know he couple more i think what another incomplete pass to the third row of the stands and then a <laughs> sack or or something but yeah uh that i mean it was because they did have momentum going they did have you know they had moved the the it was at the point where the niners had scored some points and you're thinking okay go into half but with two minutes left herbert moved down moved down got hit in the head stalled out got the field goal so it could have it slowed him down probably just enough to you know help the night it helped the niners no doubt having Chase Daniels come in there who let, let's face it, it. It was a wonder he found his helmet as quickly as it did, because I mean, the guy hasn't, I mean, how many plays has he played in the past couple of years? I mean, usually he's, he doesn't even call plays. He just sits on the bench. So, um, but yeah. Uh, anything else about the game that you wanted to uh, bring up or highlight? No, I think that's about it. Well, let's get to swing around the NFL. Um do you want to do you want to talk about the Raiders and the Colts because that was all the rage for you know 
leading up to the game, Jeff Saturday becoming head coach, everyone <laughs> blasting Ursay and from Bill Cower saying it was a disgrace to Joe Thomas saying, you know, it's the most disgusting thing he's seen. And he, he went, what, one in 31 in two seasons or something? Like, I don't know. What, what was your impression of what happened? And, you know, does this just open the door for you know, Peyton Manning to get a, a job to for Charles Woodson to become the next Raider. Does this just open that door? Well, first of all, I always tell my kids that I'm cooler than they are. And apparently my gambling choices confirm that as I am the ultimate cooler since I did pick the Raiders to beat the Colts this week in our lock of the week, but well, I'm not accepting blame for what happened to the Raiders on Sunday. I mean, come on. They were playing against a team in disarray who fired their head coach replaced him with a guy who had never coached in the NFL or college. And that dude, being Jeff Saturday, even called him out just a week prior for being, quote, unquote, horrible. I mean, if you can't get up to beat that guy, I don't know what to tell you. And yet, after another embarrassing defeat, Mark Davis said Josh McDaniels is doing a fantastic job. I mean, I don't – I that is an unmitigated disaster in Las Vegas. Because you have guys like Derek Carr and guys like Devontae Adams coming out saying there's not enough guys who are buying in and doing what, whatever they can to win. Mm -hmm. I don't know how McDaniels could be doing a fantastic job where that things are just peachy keen It's you it, know, it, on that team. No, I, I agree. I mean, look, I'll, I will accept blame in terms of I thought the Raiders were going to be better this year. I, I thought they were going to be vying for a playoff spot. Um, they had, they had a, an offensive minded coach with a quarterback and offensive weapons and a defense that, you know, was serviceable. <laughs> and the thing about Carr's comments that not enough people in the locker room want to win, or they don't love it as much as whatever, whatever his exact comments were, are strange because it wasn't like they had a huge turnover this past year. I mean, this was a team that went to the playoffs last year. This was a team that, you know, seemingly had enough pieces. If this wasn't, this wasn't the Carolina Panthers, you know, where, Hey, this is a basically a stripped down version and we've got to build it all back up. You're talking about a team that was a playoff caliber team and didn't lose any pieces but gained significant pieces and they're significantly worse. And I don't, I don't know what to make of it because is this just another example of Bill Belichick assistants just cannot get it done. They, they are not as good outside of that insulated new England building when they're, when they're asked to go on their own, that they can't handle it, that they try and implement the New England system of just strict everything, you know, buttoned down, um, but teams can't adjust to that quick. I have no idea, but the fact that Carr is calling out the team, and, and let's face it, that they've already, the, the one thing they have done is eliminated themselves from the very questionable draft picks that John Gruden and Mike Mayock made in terms of what, um, what's Jonathan Abrams? Is that who? Mm -hmm. they just got, they, I mean, they just released him. Henry Ruggs is, you know, was questionable character 
and found it, you know, still in jail. So, and, and there are just a number of draft picks out of that Raider, that, that Mayock Gruden time that people were really questioning just in terms of their character or their talent or where they were picked. And those guys have seemingly been weeded out. So it's hard to imagine those guys are the reason that they're pulling everybody else down. And what's also interesting is that when you, when all these new head coaching hires were made in the off season, would you have thought that Josh McDaniels would be the worst of all the hires? No. Right. I mean, you've got, you've got all these other former offensive coordinators, Mike McDaniel, Brian Dable, Kevin O'Connell, yep. who are doing wonders for their team. So it's just interesting why Josh McDaniels is so bad at being a head coach. And I know Brandon Marshall came out. Granted, they don't they didn't see eye to eye when he was coaching the Broncos when Brandon Marshall was there. So keep that in mind. But he came out and pretty much blasted Josh McDaniels as saying, no, he's he's not a good head coach because he's not a leader of men. And it's just interesting because you're thinking, I mean, why? What what does it take to be this leader of men? Because clearly, I mean, all these other guys were able to do it. And this is his second go-round. You think, okay, I've I've figured it out, but he has not figured it well, out. Well, again, just jump to the other side of the field in that game. What was the one thing Jeff Saturday said he could do? I can lead people. I can lead and communicate. Those were his two pillars that he stood on because while well, he didn't have college experience or pro experience or positional experience or GM experience, he didn't have any. He never called a play. He never, he called, never a called a play in his life. Peyton Manning says, don't call the play, Jeff. Just block. Let me call the plays. Yeah. The, the two things he said in his press conference and two things that he stood on were, I can lead men and I can communicate. It's kind of ironic that a guy who does, who says those are his two things takes a ragtag Colts team into Las Vegas against a guy who everyone thought is a more offensive-minded guy. He's got more tools and beats him. Now, I will say, had I known Matt Ryan was definitely going to start for the Colts, I would have given the Colts a little bit better of a chance, more, you know, a, a better chance to beat the Raiders because – Although Ryan had played bad, just the fact that you had to believe they were going to try and go back to basics. Ryan can definitely do that. Um, so that in itself was something that I'm like, okay, Ryan's playing. Now I can see why the Colts are getting, have a chance in this game. So what do you think even happened in Indianapolis? I don't even think we really dissected like why they fired Frank Reich and brought in Jeff Satter. I think we just all sort of mocked it because it was just yeah. so outrageous. But like to not only hire Jeff Saturday, but reverse course and bring Matt Ryan back into the fold as a starting quarterback. When we all thought like, look, the Colts, they just don't, they don't see a future with Matt Ryan. He looked cooked. So they don't want to jeopardize the potential of being on the hook for, I guess, yeah. his contract next year, if they wanted to cut him or whatever it is. Right. But then suddenly he's back as the starting quarterback. So do you know what happened and what was the decision making behind that? I don't. I mean, the the assumption was it was a money thing that that Ryan was going to make so much money. And if he was injured and couldn't pass a physical after the season, they were going to be on the hook for another whatever, 40 million. So the season wasn't going anywhere. We're just going to essentially, you know, throw in the towel. Um, but I think that had to be one. I mean, clearly that was one of that was a Saturday call. That was him telling Ursay, hey. It, it, 
I'm I'm playing Matt Ryan. Like in order or to, if you want me as head coach, right? If you want me, I I need to be able to do this. And but what's interesting also is, it, it, does this? I mean, Ursay had to have zero confidence in anyone other coach on the staff. And it, and I think John Fox is on that staff, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, he's a former Fox, head coach. Gus Bradley. You know, you're talking about a couple guys who have head coaching experience. He wasn't willing to turn the team over to them, which seemingly would have trust issues. And he would seemingly, Ursa would have trust issues with the GM, Ballard, because he wouldn't even let him make the decision. This was an Ursa pick. Um, so does this mean, you know, he's in there and he's telling Saturday, hey, basically you got to clean up this internal mess that, you know, nobody really knows about, but it was very dysfunctional week. No one can get on the same page. Um, and I need you to figure out who's really, who's in, you know, as being a football guy, who's just here collecting a paycheck, who's, you know, an up and coming bright mind. I need someone who's on the inside to know all this. And I can't trust anyone currently to do it. So I'm bringing in an outsider. Well, I think it was Joe Thomas who, when he was ripping the decision to yep. bring in Jeff Saturday, said something like, all Jim Ursay did was hire his drinking buddy. Yeah. And yeah. I can see that happening because, I mean, what was Ursay even saying at that press conference? Like, I don't know how to make sausages or build rocket ships, but I know football or something. I mean, it's like he was on the sauce. That's what it sounded like. So... I don't even know if there was any rhyme or reason to bring in Jeff Saturday strategically other than you just hang out, just be here. I just need someone I could talk to and complain about that. I actually enjoy. I don't want to talk to Chris Ballard. I don't want to talk to any of these guys. They make me sick. Uh, the, <laughs> let's face it. The real moral of the story is if Jerry picks your team, you're doomed in lock. Of the <laughs> so, I mean, just so, hey, man, so I was on a streak. I'm not talking well, some Frank the Tank, we're all going streaking kind of streak, but it was a mini streak. So so just for all you fan bases. I respect the streak. For all the fan bases who are listening, Lock of the Week will be coming up in just a minute. So on the edge of your seat to see if if Jerry will, you know, doom your team. But spinning around the rest of the NFL, um, the Lions beat the Bears. Interesting game because the Bears set an NFL record. Three weeks in a row, they've scored 29 or more points. All three weeks, they've lost. Um, and I, you know, you start seeing pe people put things like, oh, clearly Justin Fields is the best quarterback to come out of that draft class. And to me, again, I'm like, can we wait and see? Because he's winning or, or he's racking up stats in losing efforts. And while his stats look good, it's not helping him accomplish anything. And he's not doing it in a way that would seemingly be like, well, I could like Mike Vick did later in his career where you're like, oh, Vick is staying in the pocket. Vick's trying to throw the ball. Vick's trying to run that offense. Field sees the lane and he's gone. And that's why he's racked up hundreds of yards rushing. In fact, I think he was what top five in the NFL over the past month in terms of rushing. Um but the most interesting thing to me is that with the win, the Lions own the seventh pick in the draft, but not because of how bad they are. They own the seventh pick in the draft because that's the Rams pick that they got for the Jared Goff trade. Um, so 
the the rate the Lions won and got better draft position this week. So kudos to Dan Campbell for for his. You want to talk about streaking? His team is on a streak. I mean, you beat <laughs> you beat Rodgers and then you beat your division rival Bears. I mean, it it might be celebrate celebration time in Motown. Well, in terms of fields and the Bears, we you know you have to remember that. They just traded their two best defensive players in Robert Quinn and Roquan Smith. So defensively, you knew they were going to take a hit. Um, But at the same time, I mean, Matt Eberflus, their head coach, does have a defensive background. That's his thing. So Mm -hmm. it's not really on Justin Fields that defensively they're not very good. But, yeah, I mean, he's basically gone Lamar Jackson, and I think that's where he's going to make his, you know, make his hay or whatever they say. Um, at least this season, right? It's like you got to get going somehow on offense, and if it's got to be with your legs, then it's got to be with your legs. Um, but you were talking about the Packers. Um, I mean, I, I guess the assumed demise of Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady still premature. Mm-hmm. Both quarterbacks got their teams back in the win column. Brady and the Bucks beating the Seahawks, which is great for the Niners, uh, and Rodgers beating his old coach Mike McCarthy throwing three touchdown passes to the rookie Christian Watson in the process. So Packers aren't dead yet. (laughs) Um, And I think we talked about the team definitely has risen from the ashes this season, the Miami Dolphins lighting up the scoreboard. Um, I think I saw that they were 8-0, that Tua is 8-0 as a starter this year. And in the last three weeks, he's thrown nine touchdowns and zero interceptions for nearly 1,000 yards. So, yeah. Very I mean, from a, from a guy who people were, were just like saying, hey, just throw him in, throw him into the Deshaun Watson deal. We don't want this guy yeah. to to now just, man, I'll, I'll, let me just say this. That matchup between the Niners and Dolphins in week 13, it's going to be a doozy. Very, very, that's that's going to be a fun one. That is going to be a fun one for sure. Um Let's let's talk real quickly about the Vikings Bills. Everyone was calling it the the game of the year. Um, speaking of doozies, speaking of doozies, um, I'm sure everyone has seen it by now. But what happened at the end of that game? I mean, mayhem, craziness. Yeah, I mean, I mean you're the, talking any about- anybody can win on you know at any given time, and this is a game of inches. All those cliches wrapped up into one. I think defined the last minutes of that game. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Diggs made a spectacular catch early on in the game. Jefferson matched him plus, you know, on that fourth and 18, which again, if the bills hold Kirk cousins and, or the DB knocks the ball away, anything that game goes totally different Um, down at the goal line, Kirk cousins gets in, uh, you know, it might be a little bit different because now the Bills aren't situated at the one yard line or half yard line trying to get out, which I guess that that was the only the second time in NFL history that, you know, with under a minute to go, a, a team, you know, trailing scored on a fumble, you know, to take the lead. Um, Can I ask was- you why Josh Allen or the Bills didn't try to just have him? You know, snap it in the shotgun. Just have them run around the 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 end zone to try to you know kill clock, and then 
he'd be out of the box and he'd just try to throw it out of bounds, right? Because yeah. that wouldn't be grounding. And just do that a few times and then take the safety. So you're running clock. And if you take the safety, it's just two points. And then you just rely on your defense to kind of nail down the way. Like I didn't understand why they try to have him sneak it out of there. Like it didn't make sense to me. They they were watching too much Jimmy G. Sneaking is so easy. <laughs> just do that. You know? How hard could it be? <laughs> right. I mean Jimmy G's doing it. That that's exactly yes. how how hard is this? Just take the snap and fall forward. We'll do that. Well, you know free. who really is horrible at it? Kirk Cousins. Who yeah. <laughs> was trying to punch it in the goal? Yeah. Oh my god! Like he had like no push at all. Um, but the the thing that does is, um, it, it's I mean it puts the Bills in a tough situation because the with that loss the Bills fall to third in their division. Is the oh, are they third? They're third oh, because wow. currently they they lose the tiebreaker to the Jets. Oh, the Jets right. are in, so. Now they get another shot at the Jets later this season, um, but yeah, right. They went from you know, hey, we're content. We're if they if they win that game, we're we're tied at the top with the Dolphins with another Dolphins game coming up. But now you drop down to third in the division, sixth overall. I mean, that's and that and if you're sixth, you're on the road throughout the playoffs. It just makes it a lot harder. We we all thought that the Bills Chiefs game was for home field advantage. Oh, whoever wins this is that's but the Bills stubbing their toe against the Vikings like they did, you know, not again. They they should certainly be able to reel off enough wins, make the playoffs, if not catch the Dolphins and pass them and ultimately win the division. I think I still think that they can do it. I mean, they're only a game back. I I think they can do that. However, it just gives them less room for error, you know, to to come up with something. So um, like, but it was, it was a great game to watch. Certainly, you know, back and forth, you want to talk, that was, that was your 33, 31, 30, whatever the final score ended yeah. up being your, your offensive explosion. Well, it was great, especially if you didn't have a rooting interest, just because you were just mesmerized by the back and forth. I mean, you thought Buffalo had the game in hand and Minnesota comes back and then you think they're going to win. And then they get stopped short and then Josh Allen fumbles. I mean, it was just like crazy, but for those who were mesmerized by the Justin Jefferson catch, which was incredible. I don't know if you saw the catch that Marvin Harrison's son, Marvin Harrison Jr. made for Ohio State. That was incredible. I mean, granted, he didn't have both feet in bounds because I think the defensive back actually grabbed his one leg out of bounds, but then he was still able to somehow torque one leg inbounds and keep it inbounds doing this kind of matrix-like body contortion and catch the ball and and make the reception. I mean, that to me honestly was even more impressive. Yeah. Than the Justin Jefferson. That was Justin Jefferson's catch for sure impressive because he did this whole body contortion thing and took it away from the DB. Yep. Yep. But uh, yeah, that Marvin Harrison Jr. catch was just insane. And on the flip, there were a bunch of games that were either unwatchable or just not worth, you know, taking note of, including the Steelers and the Saints, the Rams and the Cardinals, uh, you know, even the Titans and the Broncos. I mean, like there was some not great matchups this week. So th- those. So are I know the- parody. I know parody is like the NFL's dream. Yep. But having every team be crappy, <laughs> right? Yeah. Is that? 
I don't think this is the kind of parody that Probably they envisioned where only, I think was it, they say like two or three games this week featured yeah. teams that didn't have losing records, something like yeah. that. Yep. Yep. So we'll have to see what the schedule brings uh, next week, but uh, quickly as we've gone a little bit long quickly, um, Cardinals preview Niners go down to Mexico city. Actually, before they go to Mexico city, they were on a flight today to Colorado Springs to train at altitude. Um, so they, when they get to Mexico city, it's not as, as a great a difference. So there will be a mile high in Colorado and a mile high in Mexico city. So they're going to get some, some practice at uh, the air force Academy this week, but I think the biggest question, and and let's let's say that the Niners came out of the game nearly injury free. I don't know if you heard Danny Gray turned an ankle in pregame warmups. Um, so so um, that was the only only person who who did uh, Jerry Rice actually trip in because Jerry Rice wants to suit up and he's thinking he's maybe trying. if Danny Gray wasn't available, the yeah. Niners would give him a call. Maybe um, I see I Jerry think- at every game. Absolutely. Jerry is, he wants, he wants back in. He's waiting. And and the thing about Jerry, he runs a hundred yards in pregames, every game. Like he lines up, everyone knows it's coming. He runs in his suit, goal line to goal line sprints. Next time I'm going to have to put a clock on him because he still, he still moves pretty well for gosh. What is he? 60. I I don't know. I have to check. Um, uh, But I think the biggest the biggest uh, thing going into this Cardinals game is the health of Kyler Murray. Kyler sat out the game against the Rams because I think it was a tweaked hamstring. Um, the new call of duty comes out uh, tomorrow. So <laughs> I don't know if that, I don't know if that will have an impact on, on what Kyler does, but um, on one hand, I want to say that's kind of an X factor because the Niners have such problem with the running quarterback and Kyler Murray. However, the backup is Colt McCoy who just, you know, took the Niners to the woodshed last year, um, thanks to him and and uh, James Conner in the screen game. So uh, hopefully D'Amico is watching that film back, knowing if Colt McCoy is the quarterback, this is what they're going to be doing. Uh, and if it's Kyler, well, we got to do what we can. I, I, I think that's the that is the thing that is going to be talked about the most this week going into that game. Another primetime game on Monday night. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, as crazy as it sounds, I mean, I'm scarred by our previous dealings with both of those quarterbacks, um, Kyler Murray and Colt McCoy. So I don't know if it actually matters who starts for them, but what does suck for Arizona is that Zach Ertz busted up his knee last week, um, which isn't a surprise because he was playing on that godforsaken turf in Los Angeles. Freaking NFL owners don't believe that turf has an impact, but it does. Um, Cup, I guess, got hurt as well. So, but anyway, that's one less weapon for the Niners to worry about. And hopefully that might, you know, help the Niners. Um, the cards had been reeling before beating the Rams this past week. Um, the Niners should hopefully take advantage of whatever still might ail Arizona. Uh, because I think they're they're gonna need to run the table, in my opinion. They need to run the table in the NFC West to ensure themselves a playoff spot because. You know, we've seen throughout the league that, you know, you know, any given Sunday, anybody can lose, just like Washington beating Philly this week. So, you know, <laughs> Indianapolis and Jeff Saturday beating the Raiders. Right. Yeah. So it could be anything. <laughs> um, 
So let's let's move on. Let's get to your favorite portion, the lock of the week. Um, you've already reminded us that you took the Raiders and took the L this past week. I took <laughs> I took the Chiefs right. and, and won. Um, I got a couple. I got a couple ways I could go, but you go first because I don't want to. I don't need either want to steal your thunder or upset a fan base. I'm going to leave that to you. <laughs> right. Which fan base am I going to upset this week? Well, it looks like Baker Mayfield is back as the starting quarterback of your Carolina Panthers. So you're so, taking the you know Panthers? what that means? What's you're that? The, so you're taking the Panthers. Excellent. No, that means I got to pick against pick the team that's playing against the Panthers. And that would, of course, be the Baltimore Ravens. So apologies to Mel Kuyper and all Ravens fans across the land in advance. But my lock of the week is the Baltimore Ravens. Um, My lock of the week will be the Buffalo Bills. It probably would have been the Buffalo Bills had they beaten the Vikings. But the fact that they lost to the Vikings and are in, again, not must win, but must win if they have any shot at winning the division and taking a shot at that number one seed, they're going to have to run the table um, or close to it. So it's going to start this week. And um, I forget who are they playing. I thought they had like a big spread. Oh yes. They're playing Cleveland. Um, the last game of the non Deshaun Watson, Cleveland Brown era. So give me the Buffalo bills to, uh, to win this week. So, Let's wind up like we always do. Jerry, what's your final thought of the week? So I know I haven't been great with, you know, lock of the week picks. So I'm going to try to provide some financial advice to make up for it. (laughs) Although as a disclaimer, I'm not a professional financial advisor, nor have I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express recently. So listeners, beware. But I wanted to tell everyone about I-bonds. Do you know what an I-bond is? Um. Is it sold at the Apple store? No, not an iPhone or an iPad or an iPod. I am at a loss. Those who still, you know, might have an iPod. I don't even know if they sell iPods. But no, an iBond is a savings bond that protects investors from inflation. So with an iBond, you earn both a fixed rate of interest and a rate that changes with inflation, like a variable rate. Um, And the interest rate you get on an I-bond is determined, I think, every six months. So the U.S. Treasury comes up with some formula to determine that rate. And starting this month, the fixed rate of the bond went up 0.4%. So people who buy the bond will get whatever the interest rate is plus the 0.4%, which I believe they haven't done before. So if you have some money just sitting in a savings account, perhaps... Looking into the I-bonds to make yourself a little extra dough might help you out. So just putting that out there, not not a financial advisor professionally, but I believe based on my friend Brian, who invests heavily, this is something that he believes in. And so I would like to share it with our handful of listeners so they can make some money since they might have lost some if they listen to my lock of the week picks. So take your lock of the week winnings and roll them over to your I-bond. Okay. (laughs) That sounds sound fiscal advice coming, uh, you know, from the Niner guys. I'm all for that. Um, uh, My my last or my final thought of the week uh, pertains to 
uh, East Coast football watching. And as I'm stationed out here on the East Coast for a couple of weeks, um, I was not looking forward to having to wait until one o'clock just for football to start, because not only was I going to have to wait till one o'clock for the quote morning games and then the afternoon games and then the Niner game in primetime starting at eight and not getting over till 1130. Um, it made for, it was going to make for, you know, a boring morning, you know, before I could really hype myself up for football, but thank goodness for the European game. The fact that Seattle and Tampa Bay were starting at nine o'clock East coast time still allowed me to roll out of bed, turn on the TV pregame. Game, 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 Sunday night game. It was great. And what made it even more enjoyable was the fact that I'm out here in New York and so many fans were talking about, wow, wasn't that really cool that you kind of woke up to football and had football all day? And I had to explain to them that, yeah, that's how it's supposed to be. That's what happens every day, every football Sunday for us on the West Coast. We roll out of bed, make ourselves some breakfast, and it's boom, boom, boom. And we finish up the, the football day at a reasonable time. I can't tell you. I had to watch and, and follow 49er postgame the next morning. I could not stay awake anymore. And how it, it's no wonder that East Coast fans have no love for the West Coast because you have to be invested to be up at 11.30 at night watching a, a game of between two teams that you have no interest in. I mean, unless, unless it's your lock of the week, unless it's your fantasy players going, unless you have some reason to watch it. I don't know who's watching, you know, these two West Coast teams. But for a West Coaster out on the East Coast, it was going to be tough. But thankfully, that European game made it feel like home, roll out of bed, morning to night football. So... That was enjoyable. Again, it was just made more enjoyable by everyone who just light bulb morning NFL football. What a concept. So always interesting uh, for, for me. Although from a from a basketball standpoint, I think the Golden State Warriors has have somehow penetrated the, the Eastern market as every single time I watch their road game. They got Warrior fans everywhere, even on the East Coast. I would say it, it's definitely, I mean, you know, they talk about New York fans and Philly fans and Boston fans are just built different. They're just tougher. They might be. They they there something is in the water that allows them to go on minimal sleep and go morning till night, just a hundred miles an hour for their sports team. And if you're a sport, if all of a sudden the Warriors are your favorite team, hey, you gotta stay up late and you gotta do it. So I think um, it's called alcohol. I think yeah, it's called it's called a lot of things. Secret you know? syrup. Yeah, you know, take 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 you for whatever you need to get get through. So, uh, interest interesting to see the the eyes wide open for East Coast early morning football. So, um, I think that's going to wrap it up. We will be back next week after the Niners play the Cardinals in Mexico City. See if we're talking about a streak being put together by the Niners. See who quarterbacks the Cardinals and what the outcome is. Um, whether it's Kyler or Colt. Um, and we'll see if the Niners can actually put together a game plan that, you know, makes Niner fans happy. It's probably, it's going to need to be reminiscent of 
Steve Young and his Super Bowl performance, you know, 49, 55 points, you know, maybe they'll be happy at that point. We'll see. So uh, for Jerry, I'm Todd. Thanks for listening to the Niner guys. We will see you next week. Good night.